to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast, where we feature the stories of activists, lawyers, and storytellers on the front lines fighting for justice and liberation. If you want to know more about the Center for Constitutional Rights and our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter, Frontlines of Justice, and we'll keep you up to date on important developments and exciting events near you or online. You can also make a donation to help us keep doing the vital work of supporting our partners, movements, and communities. As always, don't forget to subscribe to The Activist Files and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And now, here's The Activist Files podcast. Welcome to The Activist Files, a podcast by the Center for Constitutional Rights where we feature the stories of people on the front lines fighting for justice. My name is Sama Cisse, and I am a Bertha Justice Fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Today, I'm in conversation with Mzue Azeki, the Deputy Director at the Immigrant Defense Project, and Joseph Thompson, an immigrant who was formerly detained by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, better known as ICE, and is currently fighting his case at the Board of Immigration Appeals. Joseph is also an activist who speaks out against immigration detention. What a great group to have today. I'm so excited for our conversation about the resistance being waged to end the harms of the U.S. immigration and border enforcement systems. Um, and I really want to start by passing it to you, Mizue, to give us an overview of the report that the Center for Constitutional Rights and the Immigrant Defense Project have worked on around this issue. Thank you, Sama, and thank you, Joseph, for taking the time to join us today and for your work um, fighting against the ICE detention system. <laughs> Great. So this report that is called Cruel by Design, Voices of Resistance from Immigration Detention, came about during the pandemic as the Center for Constitutional Rights and IDP, Immigrant Defense Project, were both working um, in different detention centers and kind of more broadly in terms of the advocacy to fight for ICE and the government to release as many people as possible because we were in the midst of a global pandemic. And what became clear very quickly was, you know, it didn't matter how many lawyers were focused on this or how many community groups were challenging this practice. And it didn't matter to ICE at all that we were in the midst of this unprecedented global pandemic and the grave risk that people faced being contained and in prison during this time, and that it was going to continue its cruel practices of immigrant detention. And this is because this is what the system was designed to do, right? The set of laws and the set of practices that was working and is cruel by design. We also knew that this wasn't a new problem that was specific to the pandemic and just very much part of a system that had exploded over the past 20 years as the political climate has enabled the government to invest billions of dollars to build what is now the world's largest um, apparatus for policing the border, detaining people and deporting them under the authority of this you know, institution called the Department of Homeland Security. So that's the origin story for our report, Cruel by Design, Voices of Resistance from Immigration Detention. And in our report, we lift up the voices of five people, including Joseph, who have been held in immigration detention. And to illustrate this point that it's not that the laws are broken, but they're working as they are intended. 
and that they are cruel by design, right? They deny liberty. They discourage people from fighting to stay. They deter people from migrating and returning. And that is, you know, to enable not just detention, it's not just about detention, but about mass exclusion and deportation. Um, but more importantly, it also highlights the tremendous will of people to thrive and overcome systems of oppression and highlights the power of organizing by people on the inside as well as community support and organizing on the outside. So I'm very grateful to be here in conversation today with Sama and uh, Joseph Thompson, who is Joseph's a green card holder from Jamaica who grew up in New Jersey and New York. He was detained by ICE for almost three years, transferred repeatedly between ICE detention facilities and about, I think, six different detention centers before winning his release in November of 2020. Joseph is a father um, and a chef, and we're very grateful to have you here today. Thank you. So, Sama? Thanks, Mizue. Joseph, we really want to pass it on to you. Um, you know, we've described sort of how we got to know each other, how you became involved with this report. Um, but could you tell us a little bit in your own words about your story? When did you come to the U.S.? And how did you first encounter ICE? Came to the U.S. back in 1985, I believe. You know, back then, my grandmother, I came in as a green card holder. I came in as a, a permanent resident when I came in. Being such a young age at the time, I wasn't paying attention to like, you know, as far as the laws or anything like that. You know, I was going to school and, you know, working, going to college and things of that nature. At the time, my grandmother, she was actually, she was actually a citizen. I was detained by ICE back in 2018, January 14, 2018. You know, just a random stop pickup. They falsified documents, come up charges on me, saying that I was illegal. I was an illegal alien and that um, I had to go downtown to Atlanta to kind of like prove my case, so to speak. And, you know, the way they make it sound like, oh, you're only going to be there for like two weeks, if that. Two weeks turned into almost three years. So it's a lot of hardship behind those walls. A lot of hurt. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like it. And how old were you when you first came to the U.S.? If I remember correctly, I think you said you had um, you left Jamaica to join your mom and your grandmother who were in the U.S. Yes. yes. Um, I came in, I think I was I was like 15 going on 16 years of age. Been here quite a while now. A lot has changed. But I didn't thought myself was even going to be in a situation like that as far as immigration, because I didn't even know anything about immigration. No, I understand that. I think when a lot of people think about immigration, they don't think about how the system impacts people who have permanent residency and who are green card holders. Right. I think there's a misconception that like once you have your green card, you're good. And like you were saying, that wasn't true for you, but it's not something a lot of people really understand because immigration. Absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to go back to your discussion about how you encountered ICE. Because I think something that your story really highlights, and again, that I think a lot of people don't really understand, are the ways that the criminal legal system in the U.S. and the immigration enforcement system in the U.S. really work together to harm people. Right. And, you know, you entered, you entered ICE detention, as you were describing, because of contact with the criminal legal system. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Well, I was, I was, um, I was coming home. I was walking home. It was like January. It was on a Sunday. January 15th. At the time, I used, you know, I used to smoke cigarettes at the time. So I went to the store. I got a pack of cigarettes and I got one of those little small little, call them airplane bottles. Um, so I drank one, 
walking home, police stopped me. And um, they asked me where I live. So I was like, I actually live right down the street. And they asked me for ID and stuff like that. I told them, you know, at the time, you know, I had my wallet and stuff on me. I'm like, why are you trying to ID me? I didn't commit a crime or nothing. But they're saying pretty much it's kind of like procedures. So they uh, they they gave me a breathalyzer. Nothing came up because they asked me if I want to, you know, breathalyzer. So I was sure, why not? So nothing came up. Everything came up zero. It's like, we still got to take you in anyway for being under the influence. So that was on a Sunday. That Monday I went to court, the judge released, but ICE claimed that I was an illegal alien, so they decided to put a hold on. And the hold's supposed to only be for 48 hours. That turned into six days, actually, being locked up. Six days, you know, hold's supposed to only be 48 hours. They're supposed to release you after that. I didn't find that out until later on. That's how I wound up with ICE. Been fighting ever since. Yeah, that's so difficult. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, something else that I think your story highlights um, and the report also focuses on is the fact that the way that ICE functions is really embedded also in racism. When you think about the conditions that people face um, in immigration detention, and you talked about this as well, about your experience being Black and being in immigration jail and detention center. So could you share a little bit about how long you're um, detained in ICE detention facilities and like what your experience as a Black immigrant was in these various um, facilities? Oh, well, from day one, when I first got to immigration, it's a totally different atmosphere. You interact with different people from all walks of life. A lot of Black and brown people in there. They had a, they had a few white people in there from different countries, but for the most part, it was predominantly Black and brown people. Especially when you're in a situation like that in immigration, you don't know when you're coming home. It's not like the criminal system where you get sentenced and the judge say, okay, you got 10 years or you got five months. In immigration, you can never tell because it's a business for them. You know, they keep you in there and from different facilities, for all the facilities I've been to, pretty much every day they was making $600 off of me, just off of one person. They moved you around, say like you stayed at a facility for like a year, that's a lot of money. Then they move you to somebody else, they make money off you. And it's like one big circle because you always wind up at the place you originally started. So if I came into Irvin County, I go to Folkestone or South Carolina, North Carolina, places like that, Alabama, you always wind up back at the facility you started because everybody got to make money. And they claim they're moving you so they can make room for other people. That's just more money. A maximum facility like that, it could hold 2,000 immigrants. They move, say, 50 people, 50 more coming. And it's kind of like they keep moving around just so they can add and keep they keep everything stopped, so to speak. I've experienced a lot of a lot of hate, a lot of hurt, mistreatment as far as emotionally, medically, physically. You know, they mistreat you in places like that because they look at you like you're the scum of the earth. You know, they don't they don't treat you with dignity or anything like that. You got to have a strong mind and a strong will to get out in order for you to survive in a place like that. It's kind of like taking back basically the plantation camps like slavery. And when you're in a place like that, they worked you. You know, they probably pay you a dollar a day or something like that. You get treated as such as far as the food being rotten, things like that. The water is brown. You got to melt ice down just to drink water, you know, to have something clean to drink. They shackled you up from, from your waist to your arms to your legs. And they put them on so tight sometimes when you tell them it's hurting, they just make it tight. So those are like the abuse in this you get. 
situation. Right? No, you touched on so many important points. And, you know, I think part of the report, like what we try to focus on is the fact that, you know, regardless of like what types of contact people have with the criminal system, ICE doesn't really care about that. Like no. this idea that like some people are more deserving than others is like irrelevant because in a lot of ways, like you were saying, whether or not um, you're someone who, you know, served time in prison or someone who had a misdemeanor and just ended up because of ICE hold in a lot of ways, it doesn't matter because the end of the day, the system is just set up to really crush people's spirits and try and deport them. And I really wanted to go back to something you were talking about, which is a lot of like the focus on a lot of these detention centers being in the South, like you were in Georgia and then South Carolina and things like that. And, you know, thinking about, again, going back to our conversation about racism within these systems, mm-hmm. a lot of the detention centers are actually just jails, right? That are making money by having contracts with ICE in order to hold people um, in, on their beds. And so the same sort of racism that people are experiencing within the criminal system in these jails were also what um, immigrants are experiencing. So was there any specific incident or anything that comes to mind that you're willing to share um, in relation to you know being held in a Southern detention center and how that impacted you specifically as someone who was is black and was in detention center? As far as like the beating and the tasing, I remember because I didn't want to eat their food, they uh, tased me six times in jail, beat on me, fractured my thumb. And just not just me, even I had a friend of mine spoke up and not not even to mention that I had at the time I had an aneurysm. You know, I had a major heart condition going on in the process and to be tased and beaten by that just for speaking up because uh, uh, we was on a bus one day who was on our way to North Carolina. And I wasn't even supposed to be on that trip. First, they sent us to South Carolina, and from there, we went to North Carolina. And the, the facility wasn't designed to host immigrants because they don't have any materials as far as immigration laws concerned on the wall or any access to telephones and things like that. Or it's just like one big open room, basically. That's for people, that's kind of like a fast track deportation. That's for people who they're trying to get out of the country behind closed doors, so to speak. You know, a lot of people got, when you go to a place like that, you get deported. And um, from the from the medical care, you know, when they beat on me that day, I didn't get any kind of medical treatment, anything. They just stripped me down pretty much and throw me in a hole on the concrete, with no bed or nothing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes that kind of scars somebody for life, you know, because, uh, when you when you when you live a situation like that and people don't know what's going on, all America sees like um, they make it pretty on the outside, but they don't really know what goes on behind closed door and how we've been treated by ICE. It's like they give them all rights to do whatever they want to do to immigrants, to black and brown people. Time it was a time where I almost got deported. They said my name was on the list, and luckily this other ICE agent happens to be Cuban. He's told the other ICE agent to call call the BIA. And the BIA actually tell them to take me off that list. I'm not supposed to be on that list. Especially, they should have known better anyway, because once you in the BIA, that's like an automatic stay of deportation. You know, they can't deport you until that finality. That everything got to be final. They can't just, but they, they've been doing it for a long time. Some of them got caught, some of them don't. So you can only imagine how many people falsely got deported. And send you to countries you're not even from. If, for example, Venezuela won't take you, they're going to try to send you to Colombia or something like that. As long as the government willing to take you, 
And sometimes, you know, if the government don't want to take you, then, you know, they said, okay, no visa for you. <laughs> you know, we're not going to issue out any more visas until you start taking back some of these immigrants. You know, it's a big money scheme. Modern day slavery. <laughs> That's how I see it. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I think everything that you just said really goes to the title of our report, which is Cool by Design. And this mm -hmm. idea that ICE detention is set up to harm people, right? And limit your ability to fight and to be free. And some of the more visible forms of cruelty um, that we see is depriving people of their freedom, adequate medical care, like you mentioned, the use of solitary confinement for discipline and to isolate people brutal treatment by officers, like you were mentioning, the tasing that you experienced, which was incredibly brutal. And the stories you shared now and also as part of the report really get to these issues very clearly. And I was wondering, because I think it is such an important part of your story, if you could talk a little bit more about your experience being in ICE detention with your medical condition, like you said, you had an aneurysm, and what it was like navigating the system, um, trying to get adequate medical care. Oh man, me so they shipped me from because they didn't want to pay for it. They want I have I have ICE officer told me I'd rather deport you, Frank Black ass, than to pay for, you know, any kind of medical help you need. I'd rather deport you. ICE ain't gonna spend no money on you. You already cost us enough money. That's how they look at it. They would ship me from I mean from all the way from Florida to North Carolina to uh Alabama. All across the U.S., they got people, they even send people all the way down to Texas, all because they don't want to pay any kind of money to help you. I've seen people in there for various medical reasons, and they kind of like swept them under the rug. They, pre they pretty much like to give people pain pills. They'll give you a pain pill real quick and send you away and figure that's going to help the cause, but that's not. It's kind of like delaying a problem, so to speak. I could have died in there a couple of times because my aneurysm, um, doctor used to tell him I was a walking time bomb and this man need medical help. So they would send me from one doctor who I know pretty good, uh, Dr. Butler. He's in Brunswick, Georgia. He vouched for me sometimes. He would tell him, call the jail and say, hey, Mr. Thompson really need ABCD done. If he doesn't get it, then this is what's going to happen to him. They never really take heed. But he always advised me, though, if I was going to get any type of surgery, because I need open-heart surgery at the time. I didn't have my open-heart surgery until after I got released. That's when I had my open-heart surgery. And I think if I had stayed in there another day, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. That's how bad it is. It was like a 5.5 centimeter. And anything over 5 centimeters, it's like you're in the red zone. You know, the aneurysm is kind of like a, it's kind of like a bulge in the tire, so to speak. It could just, like you're driving one day, it could just blow out any minute. You know, you just never know. ICE didn't really care about that. They just care about how much more people they could fit into this one loose space, especially with the COVID and stuff. I was seeing people dying left and right inside the facility. This one guy, when I was in Folkestone, he um, he had a brain aneurysm, and he's never he never got the medical treatment he needed, and he died right there, and ICE trying to cover it up, saying that he was just sleeping, he had a headache. So come to find out, his aneurysm exploded at night, and we had to actually lift him off the top bunk. He was on the top bunk. And anytime you got any kind of medical problem, you're not even supposed to be assigned a top bunk. You're supposed to be on the bottom bunk. But things like that, that that's just still to show you they don't really care about your well-being. A lot of stuff you see in a place like that. <laughs> you know, you walk around and you don't know when you're next. You don't know when, when you're going to be it. 
they just snatch you up in the middle of the night. <laughs> no questions asked. They you don't know what facility you're gonna be at. You kind of just kind of like go with the flow, so to speak. It's been rough having any type of like people with broken bones, people with bad tooth, or or need a root canal and stuff. They don't even get seen, or if they do get seen, they will like they would take out like um like this one guy he needs he need a um one of his tooth taken out. They wind out four of his wisdom tooth plus another tooth that was nothing wrong with it. You know, kind of jacked up his mouth, so to speak. He came, he came file suit because even me, I was trying to file suit against him as far as the retaliation, how they beat on me and stuff. And they saying pretty much I can't do nothing about that. A lot of people got deported. Anytime you speak up, a lot of people got deported. A lot of the stuff that you've shared and experienced is, you know, uh, some of the things that have been reported out of how abusive ice is or how people have been de denied medical care and even die in ice detention, how, you know, doctors and detention facilities give hysterectomies. And these are all terrible things. But then there's also what you talk about in the report, the more subtle ways the system breaks you down as well, which includes things like bureaucracy that is extremely difficult to navigate or how they make errors, but they're, you know, difficult to correct. But also, I think this thing about limiting people's ability to access support, and that's something that you talk about. Can you share a little bit more about your experience with that kind of treatment? As far as like the limited access? Well, yeah, just also like how ISIS bureaucracy and the system itself really gets in the way of people fighting for their rights. One thing I've learned, like once when they move you around, they pretty much trying to lose you in the system. They want you to give up because say like because each court got different jurisdiction. Right. So if you're in, if you're in Brunswick, that's a whole nother district versus in Atlanta. You know, if you file a case, if you file a habeas, they don't want the habeas to go through because they know a lot of times. People, you could get released off of habeas after being in a detention for so for so long. And what's the reason to keep holding this person, especially if he's not a danger to the community and to himself? So they will move you to Texas, Alabama, Chicago, and you have 30 days. Well, you only have a small window to report saying that I'm at this facility now. So you have to file a whole new paperwork. And a lot of times people don't want to go through all that. You know, it's just too much headache. And the resources they have, some places you only got like one computer. Now, tell me, you got like 2,000 people. You only got one computer. How are we going to win our case? It's crazy. Then the laws that they have set up on the, see, they use a program called LexisNexis. So they have like old, old cases. Knowing you can't win nothing off of that, it's not even nothing up to date because laws change all the time. It's things like that. For example, the limited resources, one computer, old case files that you really, that's not up to date, that doesn't pertain to your case. Say the cases, they would even have cases only go up to 2012. What about 15 on forward? All those other cases, we don't have access to them. Joseph, can you explain this a little bit more? Like, so you're in ICE detention and you're trying to figure out the laws yourself to fight for your release? Yes. Say, for example, you got like a, say, for example, you got like a drug charge or something, right? And you need a particular case from 2016. They don't have they wouldn't they they don't have cases that's gonna benefit you because they know they will have something from 2009 on, on down and that's not gonna help you win cases unless you know somebody from the outside or you got a lawyer who's gonna send you case information that's the only way you're gonna win your case and um, 
we have to call the um not the attorney general but we have to call um, the inspector general and make complaints and you know they listen to our conversation another way too they retaliate when you complain we you know we signed petitions saying you know we need more than one computers or we need more library time because that's one of the things too sometimes we don't even get access to library time and that's what that's part of our right to work in our case you're supposed to have at least an hour sometimes we don't even get that when they pissed at you they said no library for the day or they will close it down and you know see so you got a case <laughs> that you gotta you know you gotta write a brief or something like that a lot of times you have to handwrite it like even my first case i think it was partially typed when i won my case it was partially typed and partially handwritten <laughs> it was crazy that's how they retaliate especially like you don't get to come out in the yard they lock you down 23 hours a day give you an hour outside it's like convicts you know that's how they treat you like some places will let you out for four hours other places will let you out for one hour you know so it's not a consistency across the board other places will let you out like for example in folkestone that's down here by florida they will let you out as soon as you get up in the morning they'll that they got like a back door so you kind of like go out the back and come back in as much as you want but that's i think that's more like one of the only exceptions that facility right there i don't even know if it's private or not it's right next to like that prison d ray james so like when people leave prison, it's like right there. They just come right over and stuff. Man, it's crazy how they treat you, man. <laughs> sometimes I just got to, sometimes you just got to smile through all the pain and all the anguish. Because if not, you go crazy. You're going to be on medication for the rest of your life. And like, that's how Americans, 70% of the population on some kind of medication, pills, depression, and all that stuff, you know. So you can just imagine when you go in a facility like that, not used to situations like that. How it's going to affect you down the road, creating monsters in a sense, if your head is not on straight. Can you talk a little bit more and share with us, Joseph, about fighting your case by yourself without a lawyer, pro se, as they call it? Oh, yeah. Uh, we just layperson, huh? We don't have the title yet to, for that license, so to speak. Fighting your case, it's very challenging because you got to know you got to know about the law and not just the law. You got to know immigration law because immigration law is totally different from regular law, like state law and stuff. So like, for example, like you could have a misdemeanor, but in immigration is considered a felony. If you have like, say the judge gave you 12 months probation, it's a difference if they said the judge gave you 12 months probation, the judge confined you, they sentence you to 12 months probation. They sentence, that's the key word, sentence. That's what immigration look at. So if they sent, if you was confined for 12 months, they saying that's an aggravated felony versus the judges just say straight probation, no confinement. Then that's a difference right there. And that's what ICE used to their advantage. Are they trying to, because the ICE and the judge, it's like they all won basically. They purpose is trying to get you out of the country. You're not deserving of being here. So the more people they get rid of, the more money for them, basically. Fighting your case um, without a lawyer, man, it's, it's, it's difficult because you got to factor in. You got to have time to go to the law library. If you don't have access to that, then what about materials, books? We don't have law books and stuff like that. Unless we have to sometimes converse with people over the telephone to look up such and such law or cases and we would have to write it down and stuff. And a lot of times we don't win our cases that way because they make it even more challenging. A lot of times too, sometimes you could, you could get somebody from the outside to, to send cases to you. 
like mail them into you. Sometimes you don't even get that because they go through your mail and they decide what what and what they're going to give. That's another barrier. That's another challenge. I remember in the interview or in the report, you talked about how they also control, control the mail that goes out, right? Like right. if you're sending mail to legal support, it might not get there. Might not get there. And I've seen many people got deported over that because say you, um, you're supposed to mail in a, a document or some kind of brief or some kind of some kind of letter to the judge, they will hold the mail till it passed due, and then they will mail it off at their leisure. One of my good friends got deported back to to Nigeria. You know, he's been here since he was two years old. They claimed the mail didn't get there in time, and when he mailed it off, stamp date because we don't have control over the mailing system in there. All we could do was just put it in a little box, outgoing mail. Or some places, you know, they got a box where you got to drop it off at, such as Stewart. They got an actual box where you can drop your mail off. Other times, you got to give it to the officers. And the officers put it in a little bag, and they will remember to drop it off to the mail facility. But a lot of times, they don't, they will look at it, especially if they, they see, if they claim you a troublemaker, nah, your mail ain't going nowhere. You know, I won my case. This lady at Stewart, they, um, my brief was due. And in order for it to make it there on time, because they was messing with the mail system, the lady actually had to take the mail outside the facility and drop it off for me. If she didn't do that, <laughs> I wouldn't have won my case, to be honest with you. You know, we need more people with empathy and compassion. But ICE, ICE is, like I said, man, it's a, it's a modern-day immigration plantation. You know, you know, like how back in the day, how they used to sell slaves and stuff like that, make money. It's kind of like kind of like that in a sense because they're making six hundred dollars off of each person, and they move you around to facility facility so they can make money. Then you started out right back at the places you left, and even back then, like you know, doing reading and stuff like that, they even have like some type of law like that. Think like the fugitive slave law, seventeen ninety three. You know, like you say, a master could legally seize a runaway in any state and carry him before any federal or, or magistrate's judge in the vicinity. And to obtain, like, because, like, when they arrest you in ICE, they're supposed to, you have to have some kind of signed document, some kind of warrant. They don't issue one. You just get a certificate. They claim, you know, they just write up a piece of paper and said, okay, here it is. This is what we're going to use in order to have probable cause to, and that's a lot of people get deported off of that. Because you're supposed to have a warrant. the crime, you're supposed to have a warrant. You're supposed to be served something. I still, did. I still even up to this day, I never got an NTA. To saying what kind of charges or what did I do or why you have me here. And I even even have that on record. But it's crazy how these stuff been going on for years. And it's just modernized now in a sense to where so it looked good on paper, it looked good on face value. They could just deport the person for any reason. Because ICE just got that much power that they could they could come in your house, kick your door in snatch you up and separate families. Ain't that what they used to do when we were slaves? They used to separate families. Then you're sending people back to a country that they really don't know a whole lot about because people come here when they one, six months old and trying to get rid of them. For what? I believe that, especially if you have any kind of ties here or history here, especially if you got like, like for example, like my sister, she, she'd been in the service. Even people been in the service still get deported. You're serving the country that you love just get deeper. It just keeps getting deeper and deeper. It kind of like start at the top. And all the judges is with ice. They rub elbows together. You know, if you got a case 
and you find out who's the prosecutor for the day because you know ice they got so many different prosecutors if your lawyer kind of know them you probably have a better fighting chance going home then it's all about money too you know if you don't have no money you're going to stay there for a long time there should be no reason why you're going to detain a person for five six years for what this person didn't commit no mass shooting and stuff and congress you know need they need to change the immigration laws congress need to step up and they need to change the law especially 42c that is indefinite detention it's like mandatory detention a lot of times they hold you on the 42c because that's mandatory detention and they could hold you as long as they want 10 years 20 years they could hold you indefinitely and ICE would even throw that in your face. We could hold you as long as we want, 42C. I mean, I think that that's a really great example of how the system is designed, right? That they have these mandatory detention laws right. that will basically, you know, even whether you have a lawyer or not, right? The laws are designed to make it extremely difficult for people to win their freedom, but obviously much more difficult if you are inside and you're having to figure out how to fight for yourself. Right. I, you know, and I think the point you raise about, well, what's the point, right? Like ICE talks about how they're doing this because they're protecting public safety. But I think what your story and so many other stories show that it's not really about that, right? Like you talk about slavery and it's about systems of control and it's right. about systems of just defining who belongs, who's going to have rights and who right. get, you know, and how can we bring the power of the government and the state down on people when they fight back? Um, and we're going to get to fighting back at the towards the end of the podcast. But I <laughs> I thought that it would be really helpful for you to give a little bit more texture or description about this idea of transfers. You know, you talked about how you were transferred six times. You they don't give you notice and you just get moved. Can you just talk a little bit about what that experience was like to be transferred from mm. ICE prison? ICE yeah, because like once you kind of like settled, so to speak, right, say, for example, my first immigration camp was in Osceola, Georgia. And I didn't know, I didn't even know there was such a place called Osceola. First place, you know, being there and stuff, the people and everything, the staff. When you get to a place like Osceola, right, everywhere you go, they got different rules and not all rules is the same. You may get away with one thing over here, like you may, you could probably wear your regular shirt because, you know, they give you a, like a shirt or whatever to wear, but you could wear your regular shirt in a place like that, every rule, everywhere you go, they got different rules. And if they're going to, some places they got to give, supposedly they're supposed to give, they're supposed to let you know or your lawyer know, hey, we're going to transfer this person, Mr. Thompson, to Tennessee. We don't we don't get that. They kind of just pick you up, tell you to pack it up. And some of the times you can't even take all the stuff with you neither. You can't take a whole lot of stuff with you. You can just take the bare minimum. What they would do, they, they claim they're going to put it in your property till whenever you get back or wherever the case may be but a lot of times you travel with the bare minimum all your legal work and stuff like that get thrown out sometimes or they mistreat it when you tell them hey this is important they don't care they would just give your time normally sometimes they would give you time sometimes they won't they would say okay you're going to be leaving midnight tonight make sure you get all your things ready sometimes you don't get that morning sometimes they come knock on your door hey thompson pack it up you know, in the beginning, I'm like, I used to ask, but like, oh, where am I going? Oh, man, um, you going over here to store it? Or some of them would answer, oh, we we don't know. We just say you on this you on this transfer list and that's it. That's all we know. So you never really get settled. 
after so many transfers, you, you know, you get transfers like from you get like 10 transfers sometimes in one week. It's crazy because like people get transferred from they go to Miami, Chrome, you know, they got a facility in Miami called Chrome. They, they you get transferred to Miami, then you get you spend spend like a night there, then you get transferred to Pennsylvania, you spend two days there, you get transferred to Chicago, then all the way down to Texas, then back to Georgia. And for what? They were telling you that, oh, we got to make room for the facility. We need to make room. Uh, we don't have enough space here. And if we don't have enough space here, why are you transferring? If you don't have, if you only got 10 beds here, you're saying that's not enough space. Okay. Why are you transferring us? That's going to leave one extra bed there. That means you're going to be able to get somebody else in when I leave. So that's pretty much how they do it. They just move you around like cattle, you know, and bring you back to the place you started. And that's that's mentally that affects you because you can't really develop friendship sometimes because sometimes they move you around so much. Or if you do develop friendship, the next day you may not see that person again because they move people around so fast. And, you know, it kind of messes your mind a little bit. And some people commit suicide even over that because they, they don't want to live like that. As a human being, we are humans. We can't be treated as such because you that's inhumane to to feed somebody something or drop food on the ground or give people molded food. I mean, we used to get food with mold in it and we'd have to tell the warden, hey, we can't eat this. Oh, that's all we have. Well, we ain't going to eat that. If you don't have money on your books, you you won't eat that day. It's it's just hard, man. It's just really hard and to take it all in sometimes. You got to get the word out. You got to let people be aware of what's going on behind these walls. That's why they don't even want cameras back because you're going to find the truth. And they don't want, they covering up the truth. You know what I mean? Kind of like with Irwin County, with the hysterectomy, all the doctors and stuff. I mean, I was sick many times and refused medical treatment. It's just, unless you die, and even, even when people have heart attacks, unless you die, that's the only way you're going to leave the facility. Because when you leave the facility, they got to actually sound you out the system. So when you go to the hospital, and when you come back in, they got to sound you back in. You know, so it's a process for them and they don't like doing it. They don't like to do anything any extra more work. And I was really moved by what you said about ICE using transfers, keep people from making connections inside, also on the outside with your family members and your loved ones, if you're always being moved, like how are you to have that support of the people who, your family and the other people to support you. And really it's like you said before, it's retaliation, right? It's a way to keep people being able to builds power on the inside to have the support from the outside so that they can, you know, push back about against the conditions that they're facing. And so I was just like really moved by that and what you were saying and how it impacts people, um, you know, psychologically and emotionally to just not be able to have those connections on the inside or even with your family and your loved ones. And you had mentioned your son, which I thought was so powerful, you know, the idea that like, despite the fact that you have this young child, they were still trying to separate your family. And you've been home now for, you know, over a year. And I'm just wondering, what does it mean to you to have that connection, to be able to reconnect with your family? And how how did detention impact your family and those connections that you had before you were detained? Oh, man. You know, my son, um, I think he was like, two going on three when I got locked up. Now he's seven. You know, time fly too. <laughs> you know? Um, he called it immigration station. I saw him one place I was locked up. This was November of 2019. Came up there to spend Thanksgiving with him. 
some places you don't get to hold your family. A lot of times, you know, you got that glass right there. And that's it. There's no really real connection between the two. At one point, he thought I was dead. He thought I died because he wasn't hearing from me or anything. Asking his mama. And, you know, at a young age, you can only open up so much to a, to a kid because they probably wouldn't understand the hardship that, that I was going through at the time. Why are you there, Daddy? Um, why can't you come home? Why can't you want me to talk to the judge? You know, little things like that. He used to say he didn't know that it wasn't that easy to just be able to talk to the judge and they set you free. It's more complex than that. And I guess the term American, like, it means different to different people. Because we're supposed to be all as one, right? You know, you in this country, whether you come here legally, illegally, you still got rights. You still got that due process, so to speak. But we don't get that due process sometimes, you know. We they bypass that and it's like you go straight to jail. You meaning you get deported. You don't get to say anything in court. That's why you ever wonder why there's just no jury or nothing like that when it comes to immigration. You know, they don't have anything like that. You go, it's pretty much a closed court. You go in there and you don't, you know, unless you got a lawyer, your lawyer, he'll try to speak for you. But 90% of the time, you know, you go and you get deported. And, you know, I've seen one guy, for example, he had spent $14,000 on a lawyer to only spend two minutes in front of the judge to get deported. It's crazy. Two minutes. And now the lawyer said, um, well, we could try to do a do a I-130. Why didn't you bring that up in the first part? That's just another system. It's a whole another area where we've been taken advantage of. You know what I mean? When you're in a system like that, it's like you're desperate. And you're looking for any any hope, any cling of hope that could get you out of that situation. And sometimes it will cost you dearly. But it just amazes me how you could feed off of somebody like that. You just take advantage of people. Fourteen thousand dollars for two minutes. You deported me. Now appeal gonna cost another ten thousand just so you could file I one thirty. When that should have been the case from the get go, but no. But because we don't know nothing, we don't know better. You're in a situation like that, you don't know your rights. And that's why I urge everybody when you're in a situation like that, you gotta be proactive. You gotta you gotta sharpen your mind as far as you know, you gotta know your rights, you gotta know these laws. You know, if you don't know them, any lawyer could tell you anything. And you just kind of like, kind of like the blind leading the blind. You're going to follow that person, jump off the cliff. They got their money. They, once you get deported, on to the next person. It's like a whole system, big money scheme for everybody, you know? So they designed a system like that to the government making money. And also people in that pool, in that circle, they making money off of immigrants because they know we want to stay with our family. They, we want to stay and we'll do anything, anything to stay with our kids. To raise our family, you're going to uproot us that 20, 30, 40 years. Come on, how are you going to take somebody? I know this all they know. You're going to send them somewhere else. I think you, you summarized it amazingly, which is what Zoe said in the beginning. And as the report really tries to highlight, is that the system really tries to crush people, right? Um, but I think, hard as it tries, what your story and the stories of so many other people. And the report shows is that it can't claim your humanity. You know, you're still a full human being with family members, humanity with connections. And regardless of how the system is built to crush you, people still resist. They still get released, still are able to connect with their families because of the power of people, not necessarily the law, because the law sometimes it could be 
can't. Nah. Like, especially, when it comes to, especially when it comes to immigration. Nah, it's not in our side. Trust me. It's people coming together for that one cause. You know what I mean? Kind of like what you guys doing, right? You shining the light, that hope. And all these dark crevices that nobody want to see or look at. So it's it just amazes me, man, how how they get away with stuff like this. But this been going on for years. All these little this little camp they set up. We're gonna make money off of these guys. They come here illegally, or for whatever the reason is, oh, we just going to port. If that's the case, then why are you gonna hold somebody for eight years, seven years, six years in the system? Why not just send them home if it was that if it was that of a problem? Just send them home. You know, don't keep them here. That's and that's the thing. You're gonna keep somebody locked up. And we still got rights, even though we wasn't born here, we still got rights. We got human rights. We got a right to be free. We got a right to dignity. You know, we got we got rights, freedom of speech. If I say something today, oh, you're gonna crucify me for, for it tomorrow, you know, because I say I speak the truth, I want to shine the light. That's that's just wrong, man, you know? And all this separation that's been going on. They, you know, they take they take you from say like say you got to say say you in Georgia, right? They would send you all the way down to Texas. You don't have no family there and nothing. So that's the mental thing that's going to mess with you anyway. You see what I'm saying? They're going to send you down to Texas so your family can't afford to come down there and see you. Your son won't see you. Your daughter won't see you pretty much by yourself. So it's these little things, tactics they use to kind of weigh you down even more because they don't. They know you don't want to be in there, but yet still they're going to keep you there. They're going to punish you mentally, physically, emotionally. They punishing you. And when you're in a place like that, say like, for example, me, I was I was doing good. I was working two jobs and everything. You come out poor. You, you lost all that. You don't have a roof over your head unless you got good friends or something. You you on the street, you're homeless. So here it is. You take somebody that's thriving in society, being a product of society, and you're going you're gonna to ruin that. Then once they get released, if they don't have a good family support, they got to start all the way over again. And some people, it's hard starting over. Some people don't, they don't want to start over, you know. But sometimes we are forced in a situation that we got to keep our head up and we got to keep moving forward. And a lot of us, sometimes we don't have that mentality. We just say, you know, we're just going to give up. And back to ICE again, they just want you to give up. They want you to give up on your family, your friends, your freedom, all that you done built in this country and help built. In this country, that you just your social security, all that gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's and if you don't claim it, all this unclaimed money, they get it. They put it to whatever use they're gonna use it for, you know, or they personal vacation trip and all that stuff. Kind of like these polices out here. They supposed to be working for us, right? Taxpayers' money. But you're seeing all this innocent shooting, killing going on, especially with you know the Arbery family. If you don't get things on tape, even with even with stuff on tape, they still try and deny it. So you can just imagine in immigration that all the wrongs they done did, it's not even come to light. It won't come to light because they're not going to show it. They're not going to tell on themselves. Our report, Cruel by Design, ends with highlighting resistance efforts, right? So how people organize protests, hunger strikes, work stoppages, uh, media outreach efforts, and other efforts of resistance on the inside and against ICE. Um, and the detention conditions that they were facing. Do you have any closing thoughts to share about resistance against immigration detention and what needs to be done moving forward to re system, but 
also to ensure the humanity of people who are being targeted by these various systems you mentioned. Mm, that's 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 a, that's a full take right there. <laughs> well, I guess. Well, we need more people like you guys, first of all, because you guys are shining the light on what's going on. But we need, we also need, we all got to come together as a group. I mean, Congress got to step up and change the laws. You know, we, we, you know, we got people, you vote for this person, that person, but sometimes our needs still don't met because you, you got people, you put people in position and the whole justice system need to be changed. Me personally, they need to do away with that mandatory detention. You know, they need to change that 42C law. We got to we got to hold people accountable because we're not holding ICE agents. We're not holding them accountable for their actions. And I think when we start holding them accountable, then we're going to see changes just by locking up people falsely, arresting people for, for just simple things. You know, the separation of family. We got we got to hold those people accountable, man. I think that's when we're going once we start holding them accountable, we're going to see things going to start moving in the right direction, even if it's just a little bit. But we're going to be heading in the right direction. That's how I see it. I want to thank you, Joseph, for sharing your time and story, but also for your fight. I there aren't enough people that are able to get out and to be able to speak and share about how I treats people. And Absolutely. I think yeah, from the whole of it, right, from the impact it has on your family and your son and, you know, your son having to spend Thanksgiving holiday in an ICE detention facility um, to you, you know, as a father and someone coming out, like you said, having to rebuild. Right. And the bigger question and everything that happens to you and other people when you're inside um, and those who aren't lucky enough to get out, right. Or get deported. Right. But I think the question really looming for me is like, for what, right? Like that you raised in this conversation, what is the point of this whole system other than to excessively punish people and to be excessively cruel and to impose a particular social order that's really requires so much harm and cruelty in order for it to thrive? And I really do hope that by you and others and ourselves continuing to shine the light, but also shine the light as well as to fight back against these laws and systems that oppress people that uh, we won't be needing to have this kind of conversation anymore right. um, 20 or 30 years from now. So <laughs> I just wanted to, you know, close by just thank you and just really holding, you know, just how, how difficult I imagine it has been, but also just sending forth a lot of hope for, you winning your case and oh, absolutely and I, and, to... and I and I think my case is going to free a lot of people it's like one of those high profile cases because they're trying to the old administration trying to undo or try to change that was written 50 years ago so when when somebody look up my case at Thompson versus Barr or something they're going to see and I hope I I hope I'm a, some kind of like a shining beacon to others. I try to be anyway. You know, I try to, I would say this, I aspire to inspire until I expire. That's it right there. So I'm going to try, I'm going to keep always trying to educate and articulate and demonstrate and the way the whole system works when it comes to ICE and hope somebody doesn't have to, like for my example, I hope somebody can learn from it and maybe I just want to touch one person out there 
that they don't have to go through what I went through, that's jobs done. If I could help anybody, I'm willing to. Because even when I was in there, I was helping people win their case. People that who ran out of money, who doesn't have, can't afford a lawyer anymore, you know? I used to just bring people case files and explain to them and about just the, just the law, you know, in layman terms. And people have won their case. All because I brought information to them, you know, and you got to you got to educate yourself because we got so much information in these books that we got people written there for a reason. You know, some good, some bad, but they're there for a reason. So it's how you utilize it to your advantage, you know, because the same laws they use to lock you up, same laws we got to use to get ourselves out of it. So they got laws out there for a lot of things. Some of them are necessary, though, but I think they gave they gave ICE. Way too much power. Yeah. They didn't have that branch of government, though, but it is what it is. But quit separating people. People be with their family. The only option they give them, right, if, you, if say, like you, my son, they gave him the option, well, he could go live with you in Jamaica. Come on, man. You know, that's what kind of option you going to give a kid like. Don't make sense. But we all come from somewhere. You know, we helped build this country, you know, whether they like it or not. You know, we helped build it. And I don't think that's going to change no matter how much, no matter how hard they're trying to change that. It's not just going to be a white America. <laughs> you know what I mean? It gets deep sometimes. ICE, the whole immigration thing, they need, to, they need to change that. Quit locking people up and for months and years at a time. Come on, man. If you go, if you got issue with somebody or they did something, and especially too, like, say you did a crime, right? And you already did your probation. Are you going to come back? I mean, tell me you can come back 20 years, 30 years and, and, and accuse the person of that and get them out of the country 30 years from now. You know, it's crazy. They need to change that. That's just poor injustice. Almost, almost like double jeopardy in a sense. You're going to punish me for something I already did. And now you're going to come back 20, 30 years, 40 years. I seen one guy in there. He was like 78 years old in a wheelchair trying to deport him. Uh, he'd been he'd been fought wars and everything, and they still trying to report. It was crazy, but everybody we all got a story to tell, and we got to tell it. That's what we're doing right now. We're telling it. <laughs> yeah, we are, and we're so grateful <laughs> to you, Joseph, for telling your story, um, for being here with us, for being in conversation, um, and for contributing to the report, which we hope really, as you said, shines the light and really brings a lot of people to understand that the system is cruel by design. Um, right. So if folks want to learn more about Joseph's story, um, read about other people's stories who are resisting against the immigration detention system, please, of course, check out the Center for Constitutional Rights and the Immigrant Defense right. Project's report, which is called, again, Cruel by Design, Voices of Resistance from Immigration Detention. This has been an amazing, informative, moving conversation. So I'm really grateful to Mizue, um and to Joseph for taking the time to be in conversation with me today. Thank you. I thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We need more conversation like this. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. Just a reminder to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you want to find out more about our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. 
That's all until next time on The Activist Files. Thank you.